and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is yours, Recluse, a.k.a. Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visit blog and author of a special relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visitview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, dot blogspot, also all one word, dot com. And procure a copy of that book, I'm Out of Works, at the Farm's official store, which is at eFarmPodcast. That is eFarmPodcast, all one word, dot store. And please consider signing up for the Farm's Patreon. At the lowest tier, you get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content. And our all-access patrons have access to the farm's monthly Zoom party meeting, my State of the Union addresses, periodic write-ups, dispatches from all the adventures I have, insights into the research that's ongoing over here, and all kinds of other goodies. It's a lot of material, guys, so definitely give that a consideration here. All right, folks, this is the next installment in Wackle Redux. The uh, sequel to the Farm Storied World Anti-Communist League series, but with a twist. We're going to be looking at the evolution of the old Wackle Network from the end of the Cold War up to current day events. And trust me, folks, it's simply incredible how relevant Wackle is, uh, its legacy is in 2023. When Keith Allen, Dennis, and I and the rest of the original Wackle crew began the podcast series, we saw it as largely a historical undertaking. But as the show we did on Abe's assassination this past summer revealed, the old Wackle Network is still around, still a player, but with a new generation of leaders and institutions that have carried on the work of the OGs. At the forefront of the revival is another subject as relevant now as ever, private military and intelligence companies. One of the contentions we shall make with this series is that modern-day PMCs and PICs have effectively taken up the role, by and large, of Wackle and light bodies in what they did during the Cold War era. Wackle served during this time frame as a middle ground between Western elites from the conservative establishment and the neoliberal order alike to arrange things with a motley crew of international drug and arms traffickers, aging Nazi war criminals, and the next generation of black terrorists, along with religious fanatics and cultists of various stripes. It was an incredible milieu, both sides of which largely still existing. But increasingly, PMCs and PICs are where they're doing business on any number of levels of the 21st century. At the center of it all was the most enigmatic of private military companies. It was an allegedly Russian-controlled PMC called Far West Limited. But it was so much more than that, as we have already seen over the course of this series. Indeed, it may be the driving force behind the present war in Ukraine and how Joe Biden ended up in the White House. And seriously, I truly wish I was exaggerating with these claims. But up to this point, we've explored the circumstances that spawned Far West Limited and the origin stories of the people who founded it, so you may be wondering if I am spinning my wheels a bit. But now, with that out of the way, we are really going to start getting into the juicy stuff. And where better to start than with 9-11 and the Moscow apartment bombings? The former is, of course, the seminal deep event of my generation. Up to this point, I've largely avoided weighing in on 9-11 because, frankly, I don't feel like I have anything original to add. But that all changed once I started looking at Far West. 
Indeed, I think we've worked up a fairly novel take on the factors behind 9-11, but also the Moscow apartment bombings. These events, with the Moscow apartment bombing unfolding shortly before 9-11, were every bit as crucial to the history of contemporary Russia, and arguably events currently driving us towards World War III. It's quite a story, and I know of no better one to help me tell it than the two gentlemen that are joining me for this outing. This is a continuation of a prior recording, so don't have them here to say uh, hey to you all, but I will give them an introduction nonetheless. So the first one here with me is an independent UK-based avid podcast listener who simply goes by Senate for this, but his uh, work on all this has just been fantastic. And also joining me again is the author of Uncertain Futures, an assessment of the conditions of the present and acceleration utopia current from data to the CCRU. Yes, I am joined again by the great Edmund Berger. So this is just fantastic with the uh, the research skills that we have here on house. And as this uh, is a continuation of the Wackle shows, it is dedicated, like all future Wackle content, to the legend Ed Kaufman, alias Don Diligent, an OG Wackle contributor who is dearly missed and who is at the heart of all this. Hopefully I will make him proud with this because he was one of the guys who really saw the OUMB for what it was and the threat that it posed. So, this is for you, Ed, and on that note, let us start the show. shift gears here a little bit and get into another extensive or another really crucial click in all of this and that is the Saudis they have some very interesting links to far west uh, and an endlessly fascinating figure in that regard is Turkey Ben Fazi al-Saud can you give us a little bit of background on this guy's links to the Bush family and how he became involved with far west senate okay Prince Turkey al-Fazl uh, is a prominent Saudi Arabia Saudi Arabian uh, intelligence official, diplomat, um, and he was the youngest son of the late King Faisal. He was educated at American universities, uh, including Georgetown, Princeton, uh, and also Cambridge in Britain. Um, Turkey started his political career, serving as the deputy to his uncle, Kamal Adham, 
uh, and then succeeded him as the head of uh, our, well, the G GID, um, which is the General Intelligence Directorate, so uh, their spy, Saudi spy agency. Um, he held this position for 23 years until 10 days before September the 11th, uh, September the 11th, 2001. Um, he also played a key role in uh, organizing the military operation to remove the terrorists uh, who had taken hostages at the Masjid al-Haram in Mecca uh, during the Grand Mosque seizure in 1979. So that was his first job and presumably 9-11 was his last. Um, Turk, well, allegedly, um, Turkey claimed his intelligence agency knew something alarming was being planned in the months before the September 11th attacks. Um, he stated that he received a warning about something spectacular that was about to happen to the Americans, British, French and Arabs in the summer of 2001, although they did not know the exact location of the planned attack. They knew something was being planned. Um, the unexpected resignation of Turkey, despite his term being extended for another four years, just a few months before the attacks, raised questions. He was replaced by Nawaf bin Abdulaziz, who had no background in intelligence. Um, the timing of all this has uh, raised a lot of suspicions um, that he was he was heavily connected to it. Um, he was also one of the funders of the BCCI Bank, which was the organizational center for the C for CIA's illegal operations around the world, which we, we've contacted, we got got into this already. Um, he was also connected to Iran Contra. Um, he was also the president of the Faisal Islamic Bank, which financed the Muslim Brotherhood and other fundamentalists. He was also heavily involved in the financing of the wars in Chechnya with the help of Adnan Khashoggi. Um, Turkey is one of the most senior princes that has extensive experience of working with the US and British intelligence services. Um, I mean, another figure to just mention here is, uh, is Prince Bandar. Um, who was, I think, the ambassador to the US at the time, is described as super, super close to the um, Bushes, is also heavily, heavily implicated in 9-11. Um, I think these two were um, in, in really close into that milieu. Um, do you guys have anything to add on uh, Turkey? Well, it's just also interesting to note from the uh, the documents in Left R Left R U um, the third Barbarossa specifically. It essentially argues that uh, Prince Turkey had become uh, the de facto head of the Far West, more or less, uh, by the Nazis, which is interesting in light of him, you know, resigning uh, from the uh, Saudi intelligence services as the head around '01 or something, and then I think at least you know seven eight years later he was on top of Far West, but. Uh, is we'll get to in the uh, notorious meeting here in a minute or two, or probably a little more than that, but we'll get to it here eventually. Um, you know, Khashoggi was also tied in with the far less crowd back into the late 90s. I mean, Turkey was probably involved as far back then as the uh, back then as well. So, yeah, it's um, it's interesting, but he was a very large figure in far west. 
uh, even though he's not often addressed as such. Uh, and that's important to keep in mind going forward here as we get into 9-11. Uh, Ed, did you have anything you wanted to add? Yeah, I just wanted to add that, um, you know, you'd mentioned Turkey being close with Prince Bandar. Uh, it's also, it's not just like social ties, but it's familial ties as well. Um, Turkey's sister, Prince Haifa, is Bandar's wife. Just thought that was an interesting nugget of trivia. Ah, uh, so even a little closer then. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and she she was identified as um, by uh, yeah she was one of the sponsors of the nine eleven hijack. Yes, yeah, she personally provided money according to Zakari's Zawi. Um, if that's how, I can't I don't know how to pronounce his name, but I think or something like that. Yeah, so you know Turkey's sister, Bandar's wife, nine eleven hijacker funder, all wrapped up in one little thing. So fascinating to say that. Um, Turkey was also so in bed with Far West, even running it like in, in light of that connection. Yeah, it was Zuhari, by the way. Um, yes. Uh, oh, uh, Senator, did you have some there too, sir? Yeah. Well, I mean, what what I forgot to mention was, I mean, if we think about uh, Safari Club, um, so you know, uh, the sort of post, uh, what was it? Church. It's kind of like a private CIA. Yeah, yeah. It was set up like around the mid-70s by the French and the Saudis supposedly to fill the gap left after the CIA was slapped by the church committee in the mid-70s. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, Turkey was the organizer of of the Safari Club, right? He was the the head of intelligence. He's the one who's uh, released, you know, the statements on kind of what it was doing. Um, and that's where I think they developed, uh, the strategy of kind of, um, banking, doing everything secret, um, making use of, you know, uh, secret banks, um, secret funding. So if we want to pinpoint, you know, what, I guess, far West and, you know, the diligence even, and all of these organizations, like, I guess, a point you know a pivot point in all of them i think it was that in which case you know turkey was at the head of that yeah i'd like to throw something in there with the safari club too um it's the club itself has a really interesting history that even predates like this period um it was owned by the actor william holden and like the physical facilities um, by William Holden and a kind of a mobster guy named uh, Ray Ryan. And they were kind of talked into purchasing it in the 50s by none other than a man named Ricardo Sicra, who was very tied up with Commerce Corporation. Yeah, I was actually yeah. thinking if we're really being honest, like the OG yeah. for all this was the World Commerce Corporation. No, for sure. There, there's a direct line because Sicra yeah. and then... Um, interestingly um well actually right. too as I've, I've argued in my book julian amory was almost uh lord julian amory uh the glorious tory mp and later the sir cal chairman um was almost surely being backed by the world commerce corporation uh yeah was robert maxwell and um uh amory was actually the guy that they originally wanted to run um bcci <laughs> oh i didn't know Chairman, that. yeah 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 they had asked him and this was like in the mid 70s uh you know when they were having the um all the rumblings of a coup over there which many of his associates uh were tied into so he was 
And like, I'm a little busy with things uh, here back in the home country, guys. But, you know, good luck with that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that, please send me the references that because I would love to follow up on that. Um, oh, absolutely. But uh, with the Safari Club, though, he, um, you know, th- these guys buy it. And they, in the 70s, they end up selling it to um, Adnan Khashoggi and Adnan Khashoggi's assistant. The CIA agent named uh, Edward Edward Moss, and so it was after Khashoggi bought the facility is when Turkey and his extended kind of circle ended up setting up like the Safari Club within this facility that's also known as the Safari Club. But I think that there was probably a lot of like behind the scenes maneuvering um, that were you know kind of making this happen because Turkey was very close to a man named Richard F. O'Connell. Kind of back to when they were college students together, they were like roommates together. But Dickie, as Richard was known, uh, he was very close with Ricardo Sicra as well. And they got into all kinds of like business ventures together, maybe some that involved uh, Turkey himself. So just to say all these people really do know each other. Yeah, that's fascinating. It's, it's interesting, too, that there was basically a direct line to the World Commerce Corporation and um, far west via Turkey. Um, but, yeah, I guess it makes sense since, yeah, the WCC was really kind of the OG of them all. Um, <clears throat> but uh, did you have anything else to add on Turkey here, Senate? No, no, I think uh, I think that covers it. All right, so Far West appears to have had ties to America's perpetual jihadist boogie boo, uh, Al-Qaeda. So uh, do you want to just quickly reiterate what that consisted of, Senate? Well, I mean, there's just the the main thing we've got. I mean, other than all of the kind of links that we've kind of covered right, right now, which if you're you know, familiar with, I guess, investigations into 9-11 and stuff, a lot of things are going to be popping up alarm bells, but there's kind of like one story in particular, which was um, a guy we mentioned, Sidov. Um, he was uh, directly connected to Ayman al-Zuhari, who was the kind of number two of al-Qaeda um, throughout a lot of time. So Ayman al-Suhari was arrested in December 1996, I think, um, in the capital of Chechnya. Um, and Sidov was kind of the one who organized the petition to get him released. Um, there were a lot of other um, jihadist figures around in Chechnya at that time. Um, so we've got Ibn al-Khattab, uh, another guy goes by the name of uh, Al-Walid, who was another intelligence officer of Saudi Arabia. So there was a kind of um, nexus point and create, I, I mean, if you if you kind of, uh, for those of you that have followed like the, the Mujahideen of the 90s, uh, especially the American aligned ones, we know that, you know, the, the areas of interest for them were Afghanistan, Chechnya um, and Bosnia basically were were kind of like the three big areas where where they were at that time but these were interestingly enough they're also all of those all of those places are like the direct connection points 
between the US and Russia as well. So that was kind of the point to uh, make because I think a difficulty in a lot of this is you've been, well, maybe not people who are listening to this, but you know, you're trained on the kind of news media narrative of the war on terror. Um, you, you know, 9 11 happens, we're fighting the war on terror. The enemy is, uh, you know, Islam, is the Muslim, is Al Qaeda. But clearly, taking all of this into account and looking at, you know, whose interests were what at the time, it's much more difficult to kind of say what was really going on there. So I, that that was all I had on that. All right. I um <clears throat> I also wanted to uh, get into this uh, uh, section here from the Institute for Study of Globalization and Covert Politics, ISGP. That was uh, the one Ed was uh, fumbling for earlier. Uh, uh, anyway, they've got a good section here on uh, Far West on uh, the uh, 9-11 Supernational Suspects uh, page. Anyway, to quote, and this is going to get into some of the stuff that uh, Senate got into, but it uh, adds a little bit more details here. So anyway, quote, uh, as for ties to Al-Qaeda, this is talking about Far West, by the way, saying with the quote, one gets the impression that Zuawari, officially the number two in the organization that is Al-Qaeda, became increasingly important asset for Far West and Western elites as controversy around Osama bin Laden grew. According to one source, Rusalan Sadov, a Muslim director of Far West, who ran the caucus branch of the Saudi-financed pro-terrorist Al-Haramain Foundation, keep that in mind, guys, uh, Zuar and Zuari were conning Osama bin Laden by secretly working with the CIA on certain occasions. Back in the late 90s, Sadov is said to have helped Zuari get out of the Dagestani prison, indicating he is an important intelligence asset. It appears that at some point Zuari and reportedly also Osama were hidden away in the region of uh, Mir- um, uh, Miram Shah. Uh, a Taliban stronghold in Pakistan, the same country where Osama bin Laden was found and where most likely former Taliban head Mullah Omar is also hiding. Both bin Laden and Zuhari, uh have always fully supported the official version of events when it comes to 9-11, at least when on camera. But strangely, even Zuhari doesn't seem to have a clue whether his Flight 93 hijackers were going to the White House or Congress. Interesting. Um, <clears throat> but anyway... Uh, the Al Haramain Foundation uh, is something to keep in mind because it also turns up in uh, the Moscow or the Russian apartment bombing. Well, also, I mean, the Moscow ones as well. So it's uh, tied into this whole network here uh, as well. And specifically, again, you had Sadov directly working with this, why he was also active in Far West Limited. So that's another intriguing aspect of this whole network all right so as we move along here real quick ed do you want to get into the possible links between good old bruce rapaport and osama bin laden and how does uh infamous russia russian mafia don Simeon magliovich fit into all of this yeah so it's i don't know the the ties between rapaport in the bin Ladens can be like a little difficult to suss out, but they definitely are there. Uh, interpreting them is like kind of a different matter. Uh, the key to this kind of interconnection would be the bin Laden family's kind of sprawling economic empire 
Um, sure, like everybody's heard of the Saudi Bin Laden group, which is like their big uh, construction company. But like probably more important than that actual group is SECO or the Saudi Bin Laden um, or sorry, the Saudi Investment Corporation. And like ostensibly SECO is like the holding company or the Saudi Bin Laden group. But it's got um, it's like a it's like an octopus, basically. Uh, it's overseen by Osama's brother, Yeslam Bin Laden. And it's got just countless subsidiaries and basically every offshore tax haven, you know, in the world. And it's got corporate shells nested within corporate shells. Um, And it has ownership stakes in countless Middle Eastern banks. And it has, you know, all these kind of subsidiaries. They all have, you know, boards and it packs the boards with figures tied into like all these other kinds of intriguing companies. And so Seco is designed to move money around the world invisibly. Um, and it's interesting because if you start to dig into the history of Seco, it seems that there was an American who helped kind of design this structure. Uh, his name's Charles Tickle. And he was a bigwig in the Fleur Corporation. He ran that company's real estate unit. And then that real estate unit was spun off into its own private real estate company that Tickle was in charge of. So that kind of like opens up the possibility that one, Americans were involved in setting all this up, and two, that bin Laden money was being put into American real estate. Um, then there's like some pretty like other kind of fascinating figures that pop up kind of in the orbit of Seco. There was a, a subsidiary called Russell Wood. This is one of their London subsidiaries. And it had uh, members of a family called the Shikarchis um, were on the board of this. And they, maybe we'll talk about them a bit later, something they were involved in um, covert CIA support for the Mujahideen. And so when you start to put the Shikarchis into the picture, you know, it raises this question, like, did Seco support Osama bin Laden? And Yaslem bin Laden says that he broke relations off with his brother. Yet there is, like, documentary evidence to show that Yaslem had ties to Osama, like, in law, like two years after he declared his jihad on the West. Um and then Daniel Hopsicker kind of, he turned up evidence that Seco's aviation subsidiary was sending its pilots to be trained at the um, same Venice flight school where some of the 9-11 hijackers are being trained down in Florida. So, you know, it's, eh, it seems a little suspicious. Um, another set of characters that appear in Seco are Badawan Dunant and Charles Rochaw. And these are two Geneva attorneys who are very close to like Islamic banking circles, particularly like those that were like supporters of terrorism, not like trying to say that Islamic banking is bad in general. Uh, but these two characters also administered a trust called the Tyndall Trust, which got curiously liquidated just a few months prior to 9-11. And one of the figures in the Tyndall Trust was William, Willard Zucker, 
you had mentioned him earlier. He was the friend of Safra, who was running the Iran-Contra and financial operations. And so clearly, like, there, there's a lot that's going on with Seco. It kind of reaches out and connects to a lot of different things. Um, so, you know, how does Rappaport fit into this picture? Um, so he had a company, it was one of his subsidiary companies called Inter Maritime Management. And it had its offices in Geneva. And then it had an additional subsidiary company called Unimags Trading, which was also located in Geneva. And the address for Unimags just so happened to be the same address where the Geneva offices of Seco were located. And so that already starts to suggest that there's like a connection between Rappaport and the Bin Ladens and Seco, but we can also start to find that there's quite a bit like there, there's more to this connection. Um, key person here would be a man named Alfred Hartman. Uh, Alfred Hartman is like a grade A spook. Like he pops up everywhere. You know, he's very tied in with both Rappaport's banks and the Bank of New York. Um, he appears in the savings and loans crisis because he did business with Charles Keating. Um, he was on the board of BNL, which was a P2 controlled Italian bank that was implicated in brokering the sale of arms to Iraq in the 80s. But like behind all of this, he was a BCCI guy. Um, and if you look at the congressional BCCI report, it calls Hartman a BCCI rent-a-face. That's the term they used. He's like a front man that they would be placed. He would be placed anywhere that BCCI had a hidden interest. And we do know that BCCI had a hidden interest in Rappaport's intermaritime. So it makes sense why Hartman would be there. But like another place that BCCI put Hartman was a bank called BCP, which was actually like a joint venture between BCCI and Union Bank of Switzerland. Now, the offices of BCP were located at the same Geneva address as Intermaritime Management. That's the company that had the subsidiary that had the same addresses as SECO. And it gets even more kind of convoluted because BCP was affiliated with the Saudi bank called the National Commercial Bank, uh, which was owned by Khalid bin Mavus, who was like another uh, very prominent BCCI insider. He was very close to Khashoggi. He was very tight with the bin Laden family. And recent lawsuits have revealed that Islamic charities like that his bank was involved with, as well as his bank itself, uh, moved money for Al-Qaeda. And so that's, you know, so the first connection, we have the overlapping addresses between Rappaport's company and Seco, the second being the connection between uh, Rappaport and Saudi businesses via Hartman. And then the third connection actually comes from the congressional BCCI report itself. Um, it talks about how Rappaport was very closely tied to the National Bank of Oman, which BCCI had a controlling stake in. And the congressional report 
kind of notes that Rappaport and the bank's leadership had all kinds of deals going, uh, particularly with Saudi interests. Then the report states that like the National Bank of Oman just so happened to have been the primary mover of funds for the Mujahideen, like moving it from accounts it had to like Pakistani banks and then dispersed to Afghan fighters to like purchase weapons and whatnot. And though like, I don't know, they, they clearly couldn't find like a smoking gun, but the investigators clearly seemed to have believed that Rappaport was tied into this Mujahideen support apparatus. They note, you know, that he had been such like a, uh, a close, you know, had a close friendship with William Casey. He was you know, ultimately overseeing those operations. Uh, that raises the possibility that Rappaport himself was the go-between for the CIA, these banks distributing funds for the Mujahideen. Um, and as for Mogilevich, like, talked earlier about how he was all that Rappaport and Mogilevich were like clearly tied together, both mutually linked to the bank of New York. And in my opinion, it was Robert Maxwell that introduced the two. Um, Mogilevich's criminal organization was like widely reported to have been assisting bin Laden in the 1990s. And it's really interesting because a lot of these reports actually predate 9-11. Like you find books and articles and reports written, you know, ni- ni- 1998, 1999, you know, stating that Mogilevich's network, you know, uh, is helping Al-Qaeda traffic drugs, which is kind of like an uh, aspect of Al-Qaeda that dropped off the radar, I feel like, after 9-11 a little bit. Um, it produced, you know, profits to fund their paramilitary activities and that Mogilevich was helping Al-Qaeda acquire weapons. And there is one allegation that did surface after 9-11 that Mogilevich had been meeting with representatives of Al-Qaeda in Spain and that they were attempting to acquire nuclear materials. And like Mogilevich did deny this, but I guess like anybody would like at that moment. Um, So I think when you start to take those ties all together, it, it seems that you know, Rappaport is definitely much closer to the Bin Ladens than it seems at first glance. Um, a lot of this information about Mogilevich um, seems very legit. And given the connection between Rappaport and Mogilevich, you know, it, it all forms a very nice kind of circuit, I think. One other <clears throat> potentially interesting aspect of this as well uh, that I think maybe bears mentioning here. I know you and I have discussed this in private, but um, is the figure of John P. O'Neill. Uh, he's really interesting in this regard because he appears to have been uh, one of the principal FBI agents looking into the whole uh, scam that Robert Maxwell was running initially. Of course, he was obviously a big source uh, for Gordon Thomas's book on Maxwell that you've uh, mentioned before. Uh, but then he also was obviously one of the main investigators looking into Al-Qaeda as well, um, which is principally what he's known for. And then, of course, there was uh, his dramatic death, uh, to put it mildly, on the uh, day of 9-11 after he had been drummed out of the FBI in the late 90s. He had uh, come on as, uh, I believe, chief of security for the uh, 
uh, the two towers and what was it like his second or third day or something was what the yeah. day 11 happened <laughs> yeah he he like officially took the job in august of 2001 uh, but it, it's such such a bizarre irony because he uh, from what i understand he like he was supposed to be the kind of at the intersection of the fbi and the cia like the CIA had its bin Laden unit set up and they would provide information to the FBI. Um, but there was kind of all these like bitter kind of feuds and, and an interesting conflicts between all these people. Um, but when it came to when 9-11 hijackers started to enter the U.S., uh, the CIA agent who was running the bin Laden unit, a guy named Richard Blee, uh, blocked the, the sharing of information to John O'Neill. And because of that, like that literally like allowed the 9-11 attacks to happen. You know, uh, it's and that was around the time, like what O'Neill was drummed out of the FBI too, for accepting gifts or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. He kind of like left under like a cloud of scandal. Yeah, I know. It's just so peculiar. And I mean, I should also point out too, I mean, he was one of the first people to really start raising the flag on uh, the Russian mafia. Uh, again, I mean, I it's just interesting because it seems like he was probably leaking a lot of this stuff like around or at least, you know, coming out as a source for a lot of this stuff around the late 90s, around the time that he was being forced out of the FBI. So, uh, yeah, there's definitely a lot more, I think, to O'Neill and his what he was seeing with all of this than uh, what people have generally assumed. But, yeah, they're just um, it's another one of these incredible threads that run through all of this. Yeah, definitely. It's like something that I want to look more at in the future, because before, like, I'd always kind of considered it like a curious thing. But like, you know, you pointing out that he was pursuing both of these tracks, the Bin Laden track and the Maxwell track, you know, given the <laughs> how close that actually does seem to have been. Uh, I don't know, it makes me really pause and think that there is a lot more going on to his story. Mankind's fear of wolves is perfect. As the Eskimo legend puts it so neatly, soon for the billionth time, wolf pups enter the world. We know he lives because we hear the howl. The wolf loves to howl. He lives and travels in part of the upper Great Lakes states. He never kills for the thrill of killing, and he returns to the kill over and over until it is finished. He usually kills the old and the infirm, the diseased, and of course some young. With luck on his side, life lasts about seven years. The wolf will follow other species into the absolute, irreversible emptiness of extinction. Well, anyway, Ed, you know, we've been alluding to this throughout this whole thing. Can you uh, get into the bizarre activities involving the Bank of New York on the day of 9-11 as the towers were coming down for us? Yeah, so, like, I don't know, it, it's really strange. And you could probably file this under, like, the weird financial activities on 9-11 category. You know, there's all the significance, significant evidence, of, like, insider trading and all that. Um, this looks a lot like that, but maybe operating at like an even higher level. Um, 
I think like upfront, like one important thing to keep in mind is that this is all unfolding against the backdrop of those ongoing investigations and lawsuits into Bank of New York and its position inside a wider kind yeah, of network. A lot yeah. of those weren't even resolved to like what, 07, 08, just as yeah. a financial crisis. Was yes. Yeah. I mean, there's probably something to be found there too. Who knows? Um, but I guess like what I'm about to talk about is outlined in a somewhat oddball, but kind of interesting text called Collateral Damage by somebody named uh, E.P. Heidner. And there's a lot of legit, like legitimately good in, like information in it, but then there's also some dubious kind of source material. So I, you know, I went through and verified this particular set of what was being alleged, you know, following up on all of his sources. Um, and so what is laid out is that, you know, because 9-11 hit, the, the attacks hit the world's financial center, um, and allegedly, that's important note, uh, disrupted the flow of global business, uh, the Federal Reserve ended up dumping like $300 billion into the money supply. But when you start to like peel back the layers and look at the reports and see where the bulk of these disruptions occurred, it actually did not take place over the entire Manhattan uh, financial sector. It was really focused heavily in the Bank of New York itself. And, you know, something to like kind of keep in mind is that at the time, like, and still today under its like, I think it's Bank of New York Mellon, um, it's a major clearinghouse for international financial transactions. You know, these transactions flow through it um, and then the bank settles it. You know, the bank clears up the account balances of all parties that engage in these transactions. Um, and so on 9-11, the Bank of New York claims that experienced like this profound loss in its telecommunication systems meaning that it couldn't track and monitor and settle the transactions that were taking place within the bank. So on 9-11, the bank is basically saying that it's flying, it's, it's flying blind. Um, but there's already like problems with this story. And it's because the transfer centers that were used by the Bank of New York, they weren't even located in Manhattan. And they had like multiple backup centers in other locations in case the primary one went down. Uh, despite this, the Bank of New York reported that it had been um, it had between 100 and 266 billion dollars in failed transaction settlements that day. Um, this gets like really weird when you start to consider like the scale of these transactions. Um, you can measure the transaction volumes in Bank of New York against kind of the transaction volumes happening with all other banks that day. Um, Bank of New York was actually experiencing an ex an excessive amount of transactions that were going on relative to comparable banks of its size. So money's flying through the bank that it can't see or track and is ultimately like can't settle because these communication systems are down. Um, and then later the bank's executives backtrack and say like, no, that's just rumors. The problems were overstated. Everything was rerouted to the backup data centers. 
Um, that's the line they take later. But the earlier statements are that everything fell apart. And it's not just the bank that makes this uh, allegation, but the Federal Reserve itself makes made those allegations as well. And when this, they went to introduce all this excess money into the money supply, it was to specifically settle the transactions that were taking place within the Bank of New York. Um, this sounds very kind of confusing, I know, um, but in the book that or the article that I was referencing, Collateral Damage, Hyder has the theory that this actually has to do with the Great Ruble scam. Um, he argues that the scam itself was financed through the issuing of 10-year bonds, which were due on September 11th. And under this theory, um, the Bank of New York and the Fed was like an elaborate game of refinancing this debt. Now, like, it's an interesting theory, and I do think he's on the right track, um, but I don't think it's necessarily correct because the documents that I got show that um, Great Ruble Scam was already in operation well before 1991, and also some of his sources for these 10-year bonds are a little bit dubious. Uh, I think that it could probably be explained in a slightly more straightforward fashion. Um, I think that, you know, this sounds incredible, but when you kind of sit down and you look at all the contradictory stuff that's happening with the Bank of New York on 9-11, I think that the bank and the Fed took advantage of the attacks and they moved what are called off-ledger balances. These are balance sheets that are held by the bank uh, that are different from their official kind of, you know, the, their public facing ledgers. Um, this is important for money laundering and all sorts of things. Um, I think that they took the proceeds or a portion of the proceeds from the looting of Russia and moved it off ledger on ledger and then dissolved that money into the real economy, quote unquote, real economy. Um and I think that that is probably why the Bank of New York experienced outsized financial transactions that day. Um, and I think it's why the Federal Reserve dumped um, 30, 300 billion in fresh money into the money supply uh, to accelerate the dissolution of these off-ledger laundered balances. So that that's, I don't know, I, is that clear at all? Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, it was an older operation, but I mean, just, you know, to outline again, some of the stuff that we've been looking at in uh, this one, and especially also the first installment in this series. So, I mean, you have the whole situation, uh, allegedly, where Krishkov uh, sets up the, uh, you know, kind of lifeline for the uh, KGB network as the Soviet Union goes into collapse. It's tied into a lot of this drug trafficking and arms trafficking involved Kentex and heroin from Afghanistan. On the one hand, the future directors of um, Far West Limited are working in the Soviet GRU, allegedly involved in the heroin trafficking in the Afghans and Afghanistan side. And you had Robert Mox, Maxwell and possibly Simeon Magievich overseeing all of this. These funds, I mean, were basically channeled through Maxwell, whose fortune uh, would mysteriously vanish around 1991 or so. And then you have effectively the Great Ruble scandal taking up around that time as well. 
uh, which leads to further extensive amount of uh, looting and pilfering of money outside of Russia and the former Soviet Union. And then finally, a lot of this ends up at Bank of New York, seemingly, uh, which has all of these bizarre activities on the day of 9-11. And you have the terror network uh, accused of carrying out 9-11 Al-Qaeda with links to uh, the directors of Far West Limited, especially Sadov, uh, who was close to Zerwa as uh, the number two guy in Al-Qaeda, a uh, few other interesting ones, especially with the Saudi royal family. So, yeah, does that do it some justice, Ed? Yeah, definitely. I, I think that, like, I, I'm in I'm in total agreement with so, outlining it, yeah. So, yeah, folks, I think that we have to seriously consider the possibilities that 9-11 was definitely very much linked into this milieu of uh, individuals on both uh, the sides of the curtain and the Cold War who were engaged in this epic money laundering scheme that involved drugs and arms trafficking, most likely sex trafficking too. We we have less evidence of that, but based on the activities of some of the later PMCs and some of the other stuff, it would hardly be surprising if this was involved too. All this was carried out by this network throughout the 80s up through into the late 90s, and then it suddenly gets destroyed in 9-11. <laughs> and this particular firm is there with it. And another uh, interesting thing, too, I just want to point out real quick about this, as I had already addressed in the first installment, but it's the role another private intelligence, intelligence company played in this. It's one of the OG ones, Kroll Associates. On the one hand, Kroll was handled uh, towards, I think, the either late 80s or early 90s by Captain Bob to guard his financial empire. Then they were hired by the Russian government to try to find all the frickin' rubles that were being looted out. And then finally, Kroll got to have security at the World Trade Center on the all the way from, I think, 1993 up until the day of 9-11. <laughs> they fucked that up really good, too. Can you just imagine that? Just yeah, crazy. yeah, yeah. Oh no, it gets even better. It gets even better. Um, <laughs> I'm just gonna quote here from uh Black 9-11 again, because this is great. Uh all right, from pages 31 and 32. Although George Tennant eventually got the job, the mere fact that oh just, let me skip down here. Um uh Wall Street spy firm Crow Associates saving it from bankruptcy. Uh, okay. Thereafter, Kroll became an AIG subsidiary. After the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, Kroll acquired the contract from the Port Authority of New York to upgrade security at the World Trade Center in the process, beating out two other firms. Kroll continued with the WTC security contract through the period leading up to the September 11th terror attacks. One of Kroll's directors, Jerome Hauer, also managed New York Mayor Rui Giuliani's Office of Emergency Management, which was located on the 23rd floor of the WTC-7, which was also destroyed on September 11th. Crow contract gave it unfettered access to all the buildings destroyed in New York on 9-11, and they also had a guy as a co-manager of the emergency management thing. But again, if you guys have heard Howard's name recently, there's a good reason for that. During the same time period, he oversaw a little something known as uh, Operation Dark Winter. And again, you know, I don't know, I, you know, this is something that's kind of um, dicey. I mean, how far you want to get into with some of the allegations around COVID, but this was essentially a 
uh, a simulated bioterror attack in which a mock version of a covert and widespread smallpox would be unleashed and require quarantines and all this other stuff. Um, again, you know, there's a lot of controversy with all this, but it does bear some strange similarities to what later played out with the lockdowns and so forth and once again you see the same individuals creeping up and all this stuff and again alumni of good old kroll associates and to kind of further underscore the incestuous nature of this another longtime employee of kroll was good old thomas corbley a guy who's been a private detective who's been implicated in sex trafficking rings all across the world for decades he was close to roy Cohn. Uh, and may well have known Epstein and some of these other people. So, you know, he was a longtime affiliate of Kroll, too. So this brings in a lot of these other characters, too, potentially having direct access to it. So, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Kroll, wonderful, wonderful company. It's, um, it, it, you know, if you go from it from the perspective that it's basically a cleaning crew in the sense that it cleans up all of these freaking messes left by um, our glorious leadership, it seems to be pretty damn good at it. I will give it that. <laughs> into the home stretch here we need to discuss the infamous arms trafficker Aiden Gashogi a little bit more so than we already have I know most people listening to this are familiar with him we've already brought him up a little bit but Senna can you give the uninitiated a quick rundown of his storied career before getting into his links with Far West the curious meeting that occurred in that fascinating year of 1999 and the Moscow apartment bombing which the Al-Haramain Foundation, remember guys, was also linked to, which was overseen by a director of Far West Limited, Sadov. And how does all this relate to Far West uh, Senate? Okay, so um, yeah, Adan Khashoggi, as we mentioned, uh, was involved with BCCI. Um, I mean, if you look up for him, he's going to be listed mainly as an arms trafficker because uh, he was hit by the Iran-Contra scandal and those kinds of things. But 
Uh, he's also very much a uh, businessman. Um, did did a lot of business, but uh, as we've kind of spoke about, he was deeply involved in a lot of the stuff. I don't really have uh, too much more to add on Adnan because we we kind of covered a lot of it. But um, I think Tashogi himself is kind of connected in the milieu here, but um, there's kind of like a particular event that implicates him. So um, in Peter Dale Scott's Global Meta Group, they talk about this. But uh, Anton uh, Baumgarten, who wrote uh, Third Barbarossa, also uh, did another investigation to this. And I think the, the, this is how they kind of started to uncover uh, Far West itself. Um, so I'm going to talk about the basically a series of meetings that apparently took place uh, between June 1999 and August 1999. Um that allegedly took place at Adnan Khashoggi's villa in the south of France, near Nice. Um, the reported attendees of this meeting are a lot of people we've already heard of. So uh, Alfonso Dvorovic, who was the Venezuelan money launderer, who uh, did a lot of work with FARC, and I think was a former uh, Cuban general, Um Yakov Kosman, who's listed here as a French businessman of Israeli Soviet origin. Um, his Soviet side has him as a native of the city Sukumi, which is in Abkhazia, uh, which is in Georgia. Um, and it's like a small breakaway re region of Georgia. Um, there was a small war fought there, which uh, all of the Far West guys were involved in and pretty much running. Um, Ruslan Seidov, uh, our Chechenian uh, Far West member, Anton Surikov, uh, and then the two key um, attendees of this meeting were alleged, uh, allegedly the head of the presidential administration, um, Russian presidential administration, uh, Alexander Voloshin, uh, this was to Yeltsin, um, and uh, notorious uh, Chechen, Shamil Basayev, who was responsible for many of the, well, I think all the big Chechen Mobay terror attacks around then. So Moscow, he's listed as the perpetrator of the Moscow apartment bombings, uh, the Bezlan school siege, uh, and various others. Um, I think he was the head of the Republic of Chechnya when they actually did the invasion into Dagestan. Um, now, supposedly, we know about this meeting because French intelligence were watching the building, but apparently there was a jammer, so they couldn't hear inside. However, all of the narratives that have come out about this meeting and about the uh, kind of plan that originated from it comes from basically three or four key articles so one is a article called collusion uh which was released in the newspaper um uh versia which means version um i think uh in uh, the newspaper in august uh the third 1999 um Boris Karglitsky, 
uh, authored an article, we don't talk to terrorists, but do we help a version of the bombings of the houses in Russia, um, which was published uh, January 2000. Um, and another one by a few years later by John Donlop, uh, Storm in Moscow, a plan of the Yeltsin family to destabilize Russia. Uh, and this was published to the John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. It's no longer hosted there, but um, there are copies of it out there. So that um, this kind of, that first article was published a few days before um, Basayev's invasion of uh, Dagestan, um, and the article itself details a secret meeting between the head of uh, the presidential administration as Alexander Voloshin and Shamil Basayev in Nice in early July um, at the Khashoggi Villa. Um, according to the author of the article, Andre uh, Batumsky, which is apparently a pseudonym, uh, like many at uh, that newspaper in particular, the newspaper received this information from French intelligence, quote marks, um, and apparently Voloshin and Basayev in the article, it, it states they were brought together by Anton Surikov. Uh, let's remember Surikov was like a, um, that is a, like a cover name, but he was public. Uh, a lot of the Far West guys were public as like posing as like uh, analysts, um, political scientists and these kinds of things. So writing articles and stuff like that. Uh, but the question can be asked here is uh why did Voloshin meet uh why did Voloshin and Surikov meet with Basayev? Um why did French intelligence bother passing this information on to uh this newspaper version where that's the first um instance we've got of this uh meeting uh being reported. So um you guys all know that the invasion um by Shamil Basayev and Ibn Khattab into Dagestan in August 1999 was um, supposedly the result of an agreement between the Russian authorities and uh, the the Chechen authorities, um, and also that the the basically the Moscow apartment bombings, which took place in multiple cities across Russia, um, that these were basically not actually you know just terrorist attacks but they they were planned and operated by the fsb um however all of the original kind of sources for that rumor um or that kind of uh narrative on that story come from these few figures who we know uh boris karglitsky is um Kargalitsky is uh, connected to Anton Surikov. So they were both at the IP, IPROG, which was the a think tank called the Institute for the Problems for Research of Globalite. Uh, problems of Globalization. I might have got that name mixed up, but it was something like that. Um, where Kargalitsky was the head and Surikov and Filin and Sidov were all analysts. Um so, um, Kargalitsky basically writes about 
um, about this, and he's one of the first ones to put into the ether the narrative um, of collusion between Russian forces, uh, between Russian authorities and Chechens in planning the apartment bombings and planning the invasion of Dagestan. Uh, it was met with skepticism at first, um, but the plan, according to him, was that you know federal troops would let Basayev uh, arrange raids and sabotage in Dag Dagestan and, uh, quote here, Rob Kasavyot, uh, which is a city there, um, after which the Russian army would occupy um, the Nadarenshi region, but would not go to Grozny. Uh, Basayev would have been rewarded for his services with uh, rich booty in uh, Kasavyot and Mostok, and would, re would have received encouragement from the Saudis. Uh, the rest of the story involves Basayev being, um, you know, betrayed. And nevertheless, the Russian army went to Grozny uh, and defeated them. Um, but the question to ask here is, uh, how does Karl Glitzky know all of this? Um, you know, the um, does he have these kind of connections? So in his article, he kind of gets into how he might have known this. Um, that also we mentioned there was a jammer at the villa, uh, and no doubt all sorts of security. So uh, the article, uh, the quote from his article is here: the uh, the head of the presidential administration had a very serious and urgent matter with the head of the Chechen fighters. The villa was carefully protected from listening. The stub was thoroughly installed. Problems with mobile phones began throughout the district. However, the meeting participants did not know about one of the features of the system. It, of course, blocked external listening, but provided internal listening. But then the question could be asked, uh, how does Kargletsky know the contents of the internal wiretapping? Does he have his own sources in French, in, in French intelligence? So here's another quote from the article. Uh, Voloshnin was met in France by Anton Surikov, a former employee of the Army Special Services, uh, who previously supervised the Basayev brothers in Abkhazia. During the Primakov period, uh, Primakov, I think, was the Prime Minister of Russia at some point, uh, Surikov worked on the staff of the Russian government, Despite this, he developed a normal working relationship with Voloshnin's people. Uh, here's another quote here. Uh, when, after the publication, uh, one of the foreign journalists tried to ask Surikov about the meeting uh, on the Côte d'Azur, Surikov joked that he'd never been abroad at all, and even more so in France. A strange thing, but a few months before that, the whole country could see him in Washington, D.C., in the company of uh, Maslukov and Kamdesus, Cam uh, and in France, our hero was at least twice. The first time was in December 1994, and the second time was in the summer of 1999. Having flown on an Aeroflot plane to Paris on June 23rd, he returned on a flight from Nice almost a month later on July 21st. So, that Surikov is kind of placed there in these articles. Um, so the second article 
which was published almost a year after the first, is a retelling of the first article with uh, some clarifications. So in particular, we learned that Israeli intelligence was actually the initial source of the, was the source of the initial information about the meeting on the Cote d'Azur. However, we note that in the first article, one of the sources from the French called a certain professor of political science, an expert on Russian defense, security and organized crime. He is known for working on contracts with in French government agencies, including French counterintelligence. So there, I think, uh, as as we know, Surikov had written books on organized crime, uh, Russian defense and security. He was posing as a political scientist. Um, so again, another article is placing him there. Um, at the end of June 2000, an envelope came to the editorial office of... Um, uh, Vasia with a photograph of three people whose appearance were reminiscent of Surikov, Voloshnin, and Basayev. Um, even, even earlier, the French and Israelis reported to have a video of the meeting of, of the meeting at the villa. Uh, here's a quote from that article. Uh, we still have many questions to which we have not received an answer about the authenticity of the photograph and the purpose of the visit of people similar to our characters and how accidentally the second Chechen campaign began after this meeting. Um, in June and not in July, um, in, okay, in June 1999, a certain Venezuelan banker uh, Alfonso de Vodovich settled in the villa. Um, it's reported about him in the Latin American press. He is credited with laundering the funds of the Colombian left-wing rebel organization, FARC. Um, then another new name appears on the scene. It soon turned out that a very frequent visitor to de Vodovich was a certain French businessman of Israeli-Soviet origin, a native of Sukumi, 53-year-old Yakov Kosman. But that is not all. Uh, Villa Khashoggi uh, continued to fill up with new characters with colourful biographies. Soon, Kosman brought with him six people who arrived through Austria with Turkish passports. In one of them, uh, the French recognised a certain uh, Saviba, who is accused by the Georgian authorities of genocide during the Georgian-Abkhaz conflict. Um, all of them, according to rumours, settled in the villa for, for at least three weeks. Um, here's another quote from there. Uh, Soon the Secret Services managed to record how Cosman and Svobida Zviber, uh, Cosman and Zviber went to the airport in Nice, where they met two gentlemen who had arrived from Paris. Judging by the documents, one of the arrivals was Sultan Sosnaliev, who during the years of the Georgian Abkhaz War was the Minister of Defense of Abkhazia. The second person to get off the plane was another native of Sukumi, Anton Surikov. According to rumors, during the years of the wars in Abkhazia, he was subordinate to Sosnalaev. 
together with Cosman and Sviber, um, the newcomers proceeded to the villa. Uh, according to Karglitsky's information, Sorokov flew to Paris on June 23rd. So by the end of the month, 10 people had gathered at the villa. Alfonso Dvorovic, Yakov Kosman, uh, Sviber, um, as well as five other holders of Turkish passports, um, S- Sultan S- uh, Sosnayelev and, Sur- and Surikov. Khashoggi himself, according to the article, was not at the villa at that time. Uh, then two more guests appear by sea. Uh, according to the updated data, of uh of the French and Israelis, the private English yacht Magic arrived from Malta. Um, if you believe the passport data, one of the Englishmen abroad was a certain Turk Mehmet, um, a former advisor to the uh Prime Minister of Turkey, Erbakan, uh, a fairly influential figure in Wahhabi circles in Turkey, in the Middle East, and the Caucasus. Uh, from sources in the Russian special services, we also learned that Mehmet was a close friend of the notorious Katab. Uh, the second person to the surprise of the scouts was the Chechen field commander, Shamil Basayev. So, okay, that was another quote from there. So now we've got 12 people at the villa. Um, here's a continued quote from the article. The French were surprised, tensed up, and increasing their surveillance, and not in vain. On July 4th, in the late in the evening, a man flew to Nice Airport on a private plane on one of the uh from one of the Russian oil companies, bold with a beard, prickly with a prickly look outwardly similar to the head of the Kremlin administration. Uh he was in a formal suit with a briefcase without any security. He was met by all the same Abkhazians and Surikov. They all got into a Rolls Royce and sped off to the villa in Boulay. Boulay, yeah. Let's uh, think together. So for a whole month, group after group um, at the villa, um, an inf- uh, at the villa of an infamous arms dealer from Saudi Arabia, a warm company of 12 people gathers, which includes drug, drug financiers, international terrorists, Islamic extremists, people included of genocide, and in addition, uh, a former lieutenant colonel of group who shortly sounds like before... a, it sounds like a wackle conference. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, who shortly before held a uh, key post in the Primakov administration uh, and was well known to all Western experts on strategic nuclear weapons. It's obvious that by July 4th, when a man resembling the head of the Russian presidential administration arrived in Nice, half the world's intelligence agencies should have been comfortably settled in sun lounges with all their technical belongings on the coast uh, uh near this Khashoggi villa and even have time to get a pleasant Medif- Mediterranean tan. Uh, and th- these are Anton's words here. Um, <laughs> and under this microscope, I gotta uh, point Belushi... out too. It, it's it's kind of funny how they're almost like rubbing this in the face of like the fringe because they seem to be like the one major power that like what along with maybe the Germans who weren't invited to this. But it's like yeah, we got the Russians, we got the Anglo Americans, the Saudis, and probably the Turks. I mean, 
But no, we're going to go have the meeting in France and that whole area. And we're not going to invite the freaking French because, yeah, they're the French. Oh. Well, um, you know, uh, as we uh, as I'll hopefully get into, maybe it was uh, about being seen in these, you know, very suspicious, you know, very open circumstances. You've got all these people going and uh, allegedly, you know, Voloshnin is there to conspire with Basayev, basically to commit you know, a dangerous state and international crime. Uh, couldn't he have chosen a quieter place for this? Did he really need the presence of a Venezuelan banker, um, uh, you know, a Sukumi war, war, uh, warrior, uh, a war criminal with a herd of Turkish citizens uh, and a former advisor to Erbakan uh, just to conspire with Basayev? Only on the night of July 5th, apparently, did the equipment start working and the vow of silence was lifted and the terrible secrets were overheard and delivered to the ed editorial office of uh, Novaya Gazeta on the desk um, of this author, of our author. And did everyone leave Khashoggi's dacha by the six? Here, Surikov, according to Karglitsky, flew out of Nice only on the 21st. Was he really toiling all this time alone in the July heat? Also, why didn't the French and Israelis, having learnt about this uh, impending um, atrocity and about some of the most serious international crimes imaginable, expose the conspirators before the international community? Why did they leak the godforsaken and frankly yellow version? Only a few hints um, published the next day after Basayev's uh, invasion of Afghanistan. Despite um, the lack of a careful preface, Karglitsky's article was widely circulated in the West, including by the left liberal Guardian journalist Patrick Cockburn. Uh, instead of uh, his usual scepticism, Cockburn seems to suggest uh, that Karglitsky's reliance on a source close to, close to the group is supported by the data cited in his article. However, Cockburn fails to consider the possibility that Koglitsky's information could be based solely off his own imagination or even on even even from sources um you know from Cockburn's own country of residence. Uh so sources from the enemy. Uh, assuming that Voloshnin did spend the night at Koshogi's villa, it's highly likely that discussion the discussions held were related to something other than the alleged um, pact with Basayev. It's probable that the discussions were centered around money collusion, which may have lasted for another month. The motive behind Voloshin's visit um, could have been a guarantee um, to uh, put an end to these discussions. Uh, the, the company present at the villa consisting of diverse individuals could have been discussing topics related to the situation in the Balkans, such as the occupation of Kosovo. Uh, this create this situation created a new opportunity for drug trafficking into Europe, which may have required new agreements between the curators and controllers of the trade. These new agreements would have required guarantees from higher authorities. Um, 
So, you know, they could have been talking about anything. No one knows what they were talking about. Um, our speculation is that the conversations at Khashoggi's villa were probably about something else entirely, uh, possibly relating to the Balkans or the international drug trade. Uh, Anton doesn't believe that Basayev had any benefit from the supposed collusion there. However, what the suspicion is, is that this meeting was a setup to get Voloshnin there and create a compromising situation um, that could be used to blackmail the family. So, uh, you know, the kind of Yeltsin crew of Russia and be used as kind of information warfare against the Russian leadership. Um, it's entirely possible uh, Voloshnin knew nothing about the impending invasion of Dagestan and that Surikon had potentially led him into a trap. That's it. Uh, d- does anyone have anything to interject or anything? No, that was great, sir. That was great. Uh, so now you want to get into the apartment, uh, Moscow, or the Russian apartment bombings? Well, uh, yeah. Well, there's just a little. There's just a little bit here onto the. Um, well, I've not got much too much on the bombing itself. It's more just here this bit about how the story of the bombings comes comes forth because obviously where what we've kind of been talking about like um you know the idea that there are splits in the within Russia that some of these group agents are working for working for Russia and some of them aren't it really puts a lot into question um here I'm going to go forward and tell you about the last article that was written by a John Dunlop um so John Dunlop oh if I could interject here right quick because this reminded me of a point that I had meant to make earlier so as Ed had astutely pointed out Claire Sterling uh you know is not a source without bias to put it mildly but also connected to the Hoover Institute as is Mr John Dunlop uh which Senate is about to get into here so I find it interesting, especially that Hoover has done a lot to frame the particular narrative relating to a lot of the characters tied into this milieu, though it's hardly surprising. Again, it's one of the major uh, right-wing think tanks. Uh, they're all connected with uh, Stanford University. And uh, yeah, it's a fascinating place. I was uh, just there with uh, good old Keith Allen Dennis uh, back in September. And uh, you have to love how the medical uh, facility uh, there appears to have swastikas in the architecture. In fact, there actually was a couple of points where we seem to have found hidden swastikas in the area. But mm, great place. Yeah, I mean, I mean, just to add on that, I mean, when I'm like doing a lot of the research for this, like, it seems like every time you find something uh, quite critical of Russia uh books into corruption who in specifically organized crime the person's always like just one or two degrees away from you know someone that is connected to this and then okay you can imagine all right foreign foreign policy circles and focusing on one country you you know it's probably it's probably a small crowd but at the same time there's just something that jumps up jumps up to me you know about every every time we look into something like this 
Well, I mean, also, too, I mean, I'm going to give you guys a bit of a preview. I mean, in the uh, next installment, uh, as we get into the whole situation in Ukraine and uh, some of the most peculiar and uh, deadly trafficking involved there, um, one of the major uh, U.S. Uh, groups trying to frame the narrative in that was connected to Palantir. Palantir was co-founded by Mr. Peter Thiel, who was a graduate of Stanford. So, yes, uh, the whole Far West narrative has uh, very much been molded by one particular school, with Hoover being a feature of it, it's, at least in the English language. So this is, uh, you know, again, I, we keep going back to this, but I think it's important to keep pointing out is just all of the different sources for some of these narratives. It's just fascinating to see... Uh, just in and of uh, how this is framed, there's kind of been an ongoing war by some of these different think tanks and so forth. Yeah, I think as well, we, I mean, we, we touch into the kind of uh, long history of this at some, at, at various points. Uh, I mean, I mean, the, I, I feel like the, the kind of roots of that are, are in like a, uh, british imperialism anyway and kind of what we know about the the general mechanisms for how how these get going but um yeah it it does keep iterating and it's it definitely going through all of this research has really made me um like rethink a lot of stuff because you just think well at this point like what well, you know what books can you trust i'm gonna have to do like a deep dive into every author before um I even read anything about Russia, you know, going forward. Yeah, yeah, no. Well, I mean, you can see why a lot of these guys had links to psychological warfare as we got into uh, in the first and second installments. Um, it's it's very clear in hindsight and just in general when you see that, uh, because, I mean, they really did go to great lengths to create this uh, proverbial hall of mirrors, uh, which is a major component of this. Yeah, and uh, was a major component of uh, whack, you know, Wackle, as we know. I think, like that, uh, for me, that that was what felt like um, characteristic about about them, uh, and particular the the OUN as well, um, as as to be like, oh, we're not just purely a uh, like a militant movement. We're also a you know uh, kind of liberal political liberal facing political movement as well yeah it's uh it's fascinating uh but anyway i didn't mean to interrupt you <laughs> no, no 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 worries uh so okay so we mentioned dunlop so dunlop uh um john don john dunlop produced a um you know a, a pretty lengthy report it's called the storm report in moscow yeltsin's family plan to destabilize russia uh, it's no longer hosted on the John Hopkins site, but uh, th there are some copies of it of in places. So uh, Donlop uh, is a Yale graduate with a specialist, uh, a specialist with extensive experience uh, in information warfare against the USSR and Russia. In particular, he worked for Radio Liberty in Munich. Um, he specializes in Russian nationalism. Uh, he wrote a book about Chechnya. Uh, not surprisingly, uh, the this Hoover Institution researcher and member of the Brzezinski 
uh, Chechen committee uh, didn't ask too many questions about Karglitsky's article and made it the focus of his report. True, he admitted the most ridiculous passages, such as, uh, quote, rich booty in Mozdok and Kasavyot, and the motivation for Basayev's, quote, conspiracy with uh, Voloshnin. However, it's no coincidence that the date of this publication uh, followed the terrorist attack in Beslan. So I think that was the Beslan siege. John Dunlop published this in October 2004. So Dunlop um, introduces into the public consciousness of the West uh, the thesis about the involvement of the Russian special services in terrorism and about the moderate uh, moderate Mashkatov with whom the uh, authority, Russian authorities do not want to negotiate. Uh, so Mashkatov was also another Chechen leader at, at various points. I think early on, 96 was him. Um, all of his stories of this kind begin with subtle allusions to the involvement of Russian special services in the September 1999 explosions, so the Moscow apartment bombings. Um, what drew our attention to his essay um, is the fact that Dunlop's previous articles on similar topics were not journalistic in nature and therefore not required to meet the standards for scientific publications uh, in the field of historical political disciplines. Uh, one of the main requirements in this case was the fullest uh, possible involvement of sources related to the research topic and their critical assessment, i.e. how much these sources can be trusted can be trusted, and finally the most accurate references to the, to the sources. Storm in Moscow was published as part of the publications of the Center for Russian Studies at John Hopkins University. Uh, that's part of the John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Um, and it did not meet the standards of scientific publication. Okay, that's Anton's thing. Um, it is no coincidence, therefore, that when Dunlop comes to the actual research part of his essay, namely collusion, between you know Russians and Basayev, he begins with information about his sources. First of all, he assures that in their search, he threw his net as wide as possible, that's a quote, and then clearly sifted the information he found. All, all of this, of course, in order, as he solemnly assures, to dig up the truth. When Dunlop comes to the actual research part of his, quote, essay, um, namely the collusion, an interesting picture emerges from careful study of his essay. It turns out for all the time that has passed since the publications of 1999 and 2000, Dunlop, with all his connections, including in the Anglo-American intelligence communities and almost unlimited access to printed, not to mention electronic materials, has managed to collect his, his net all of the same three publications that we have already discussed. So two articles by uh, Vasia, my uh, newspaper, and the article by Koglitsky. Um, and here I've got a quote for you. Um, 
hunt about this whole affair. Uh, hundreds of articles in dozens of countries have appeared on the Nice collusion over the past seven years. All of them, with the exception of only one, appeared months and even years after the event described. And all of them, like all denials, were written by people who were politically biased but had no information. The exception, as I said, was the very first publication in Versia, which appeared in principle not after but before the invasion of Katab and Basayev into Dagestan. And that quote comes from Anton Surikov. And that was, yeah, kind of what we had to say about the Moscow apartment bombings. Because obviously the story put out there is that it was, you know, that you guys know that we've gone into, that it was collusion between the FSB um, and the Chechens or that the FSB planned it themselves as a false flag. Um However, you know, what does a false flag mean when you don't have control over over all of your agents? Uh, who Who is false flagging who uh, in that situation? So um, I think it's important to note that, you know, the, the, the rumor that they um, did this, uh, that, you know, the, the narrative that came down uh, originated from somewhere. Uh, it seems it originated from far west. In fact, it is possible the whole. I mean, the whole thing was kind of a part of a far west ploy. Um, I I don't know if you guys want to jump jump in here. Uh, yes, I will here. Uh, just to add on a little bit to this, um, there's some interesting information on this. Again, the Institute for Globalization and Convert Politics, uh, especially, you know, uh, in regards to Surikov and uh, Bessai, uh, because, again, Surikov was accused uh, uh, of being his handler for a lot of years. Uh, so again, to quote from ISGP here, most infamously, Surikov is widely reported to have been assigned as the handler of Chesnian separatist and terrorist Shamil Basai in 1992-93 in the georgian Azbekistan war. Until his death in 2004, Basai was the Osama bin Laden of the Caucasus. Instead of fighting his jihad against the United States, his primary enemy was Russia. A list, a list of activities Basai has been associated with uh, November 9, 1991. By the way, that's 11-9. Uh, 9-11 reversed also it's a big dated uh, nazi ideology it was actually the date of the beer hall push which, but how there were some old school links to that back in the day with the old uh uh circles around uh grand uh, duke cyril and all those other people so that's uh, interesting but anyway beside and uh two of his associates on november 9 uh, 1991 hijack an airplane and take 178 people hostages they threaten to blow up the plane unless russia withdraws its troops from chesnia russia withdraws anyway due to heavy chesnian resistance the hijackers give themselves over and are safely returned to chesnia the new president slash dictator Dezakar Dedevai makes beside one of his militia leaders uh Dedevai controls the notorious chesnia mafia in moscow and so forth. And then next, August 1992, September 1993, during the Georgian Azbekistan or Azbazani uh, conflict, Basai arises as a major Chesnian war criminal himself, be it in dozens of Georgian soldiers and civilians in various creative ways. 
June 14th through June 19th, 1995, during the first Chesnian War, Versailles heads an armed Chesnian group that takes 1,500 Russians, Russians hostage in Ravinsky Hospital. About 150 children are among the group. Versailles demands the Russian forces withdraw from Chesnian and begins to shoot hostages. A failed rescue attempt leaves over 100 hostages dead, after which Russia gives in and begins to negotiate with Chesnia. 1999, Versailles forces introduced Shilon to Chesnia in opposition to the vast majority of Chesnians and so forth. August 1999, Versailles hang into the invasion of Dagestan, triggering the appointment of the unknown Vladimir Putin as prime minister and the start of the second Chesnian war. And again, uh, for those of you unaware, Putin really hung his hat on the second Chesnian war. This is where a lot of his uh, mythos began at. Or then he was a largely unknown figure. Uh, but anyway, there are widespread rumors, continuing with ISJP, there are widespread rumors that Putin's Zionist uh, patrons, Boris Berzinski and his business partner, uh, I'm not going to try to pronounce that, with the support of Yeltsin, uh, had been bribing Chesnian commandos and commanders into starting the war. That's also something that uh, is brought up in the book Putin's People by Catherine Belton, which I used as a source for a lot of the uh, stuff in the first installment on some of the pilfering of Russia. And again, as I pointed out with that, one of her sources for all this was Anton Surikov. Same guy who was a legend besides Handler. Okay. So September 1999, besides his name is the organizer of the Russian apartment bombings. Putin's Petersburg group is deeply implicated in covering up the failed Ryazan bombing, even though the most important programs have been put together by his later political enemies, Vladimir Gunsky and Boris Berzovsky. Others implicated over the years are Anton Surikov. So, yeah, it's interesting. He was at a minimum seemingly shaping the narrative on this so yeah there's a, a lot about this to consider and um again this was a major thing that helped bring putin to power by starting the second chesnian war and also solidifying his presidency because he was you know again just supposed to be an interim president but because of his success with the second chesnian war it secured his election okay so, Senator, did you have anything else to add on Far West? Or, I mean, on the, uh, the uh, obviously there's going to be more to add on that, but the uh, Moscow apartment bombings? Um, no, I think we, uh, I think, I think we covered a lot. I, I think uh, all I say is like, uh, it's, it's interesting, like where you were saying that, like where, um, uh, you know, the Moscow apartment bombings, okay, they're, they're seen and presented to us um as kind of part of putin's rise to power and maybe they would have been but i think also you know you, you then have to ask well you know how does being um you know a false flag works when it's secret right <laughs> so if everyone knows you did it uh that's that's also like a kind of uh downside for you know for you so i wonder sometimes how much um those bombings were a part of putin's uh rise to power how much he even had to do with any of it um and whether or not it was actually more of uh 
you know, part of the plan against not just him, but kind of uh, Russia in general? Well, it seems like that there was collaboration at this point in time more so, well, certainly with the Yeldston, uh, the family with Yeldston. I mean, that's definitely something I think the left RU people kind of emphasize. But I think Putin was roughly on board with this until um, getting into the knots. Uh, but we'll get into that uh, when we get into the whole situation in Ukraine. I think that that was really the breaking point with a lot of this. But, um, you know, to give a recap here to sort of summarize, you guys can uh, give me your thoughts on it. So, you know, we've been chronicling, chronicling this network going back you know, to the late 70s, early 80s, when it seems like you had this network on the one hand uh, where within the and the anglo-american establishment you had senior figures in uh, the capitalist class along with senior figures in the security services working with their counterparts in the security services in the soviet union and also within some of the communist parties there and this massive amount of trafficking that involved arms drugs possibly also human beings and uh, at the lower levels, it was really going through the whole Bulgarian connection from Afghanistan to Turkey to Bulgaria to Italy. And it seems that a lot of this had ties to the old anti-Bolshevik Bloc of Nations network, which was so central to WACL. Of course, we've emphasized again that Felon and a lot of the other people who were assigned in the Soviet and seemingly with the heroin in Afghanistan were part of this captive nations milieu. I mean, a lot of the other guys were big in pan-Turkism, which was another big part of uh, captive nations, of the anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations, and the broader Wackel movement, okay? So, and then you get into some of these other areas, Turkey, the Grey Wolves, this is another uh, group that was closely linked into that. Italy, Propaganda Dewey had a lot of ties, and certainly Bulgaria was into the whole captive nations thing. This is a major component. I mean, certainly for many years as researchers, we looked at Wackel's involvement in drug trafficking in Latin America. But upon reviewing a lot of this material, it seems clear to me that the Wackel network was also playing a crucial role in a lot of this trafficking uh, at the ground level, where the blood flowed in the streets in some occasions for uh, many of the VIPs within the Soviet and the Anglo-American establishments. So going into the post-Cold War years, this looting continued going into the Soviet state proper through industries being sold off and strip-mined and also through the misappropriation of funds from the IMF and all these other agencies that Russia got, uh, you know, um, uh, loans from and so forth. And uh, this tied into a lot of the money laundering that Robert Maxwell had already been involved with, so the earlier stuff, the trafficking and so forth. And eventually, all of it was taken out with 9-11. And it seems that a group behind that, or closely linked to it, along with the Moscow, Moscow, or rather Russian apartment bombings, was Far West Limited, which again had so many of these individuals tied to the milieu around the anti-Bolshevik block of nations and Wackel, the OUNB, all these captive nations and all these other things. And again, there seems to have been at the upper levels a kind of tentative agreement on the one hand with the Anglo-American establishment and with the Russian figures on the other hand. Uh, the Moscow apartment bombings arguably helped solidify Putin's rule over the country. 
And on the flip side of the coin, 9-11 provided a context for a lot, of, a lot of radical reorientation of the American state and all kinds of other things by Bush too, as well as uh, solidifying his presidency. And let us not forget, this was the same era, guys, when Bush too looked into Putin's soul and saw good there. So I think that there was some bit of connection at this point. And it might have made for a uh, powerful power block, to be sure. But something went wrong. Something surely did going into the knots. That's going to be something that we are going to explore in depth in the next installment. So, but uh, what do you guys think? Did I do a decent job with uh, that summary there? Yeah, I thought that was great. Well, you encapsulated yeah. it. Very good. All right. Well, on that note, I guess we will wrap up for now. Uh, I hope you guys have enjoyed it. This has certainly been a uh, state of revelation, I think, for all three of us in doing this research for this. So yeah, hopefully you guys will take away the same uh, joy from it as we have, quote unquote. <laughs> and with that, uh, I say to you, as always, good night and good luck to you all. <laughs>
people getting healthy, right? Talking about high AZ, talking about that BMC. We got no economy if we ain't got no enemy. The Popo and the BP, DHS and Army, Honeywell and L3, Razor Wires, UAVs, officer, excuse me, please. Said I'm just eating my burrito, not the droids you're looking for. See you all on payday, see you at the Safeway. Bisbee lives on crazy checks, BP on that fast pay. I sing my hooly blues, y'all. I don't make the rules, y'all. Just paying my dues, y'all. But I'm just saying, sorry, hippies. If Great White Father don't make payroll, forget about your maple. Civilization, what?